meet with us here by the presence of the Spirit and the teaching ministry of the Spirit. Grant us light as we consider this text before us and as we reflect on the biblical foundations of the songs that we have sung, the truth that has been celebrated here in this congregation already today, that Lord, each one of us comes uniquely before the Word. And I pray for the power of the Spirit of God to bring the truth of your Word to bear in our souls. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. The Scarlet Pimpernel is an early 19th or 20th century historical novel. I think it was written in 1905, set during the French Revolution. The main character is Sir Percy Blakeney, who is an English spy. Percy poses as a silly, spoiled aristocrat who visits France for no, other be- for no better reason than to squander time and money in snooty circles of high society. But in truth, he's a master of disguise on mission to rescue innocent French aristocrats from execution by smuggling them out of the country. But Percy runs into a a major problem. While acting the part of a party fool, he's smitten by a beautiful French woman. But Marguerite is far too intelligent and sophisticated to find any interest in a doofus like Percy. So what to do? With genius subtlety, Percy finds moments to leave character and to speak so earnestly, intelligently, and winsomely in these small bits of conversation as to secure her keen interest. She can't figure it out, but you really are pulling for her to do so. That's the fun of the, of the novel, of the story. You want her so desperately to see who this man truly is, that he is a brave man of integrity, not the fool that he's acting to be. But her discovery evolves so very slowly. And you find yourself thinking, This story is going to prove really unsatisfying if she doesn't figure him out. Just tap that emotion for a moment. Along very different lines with no less desire, the gospel writer Luke is anxious for his readers to discern who Jesus truly is. This is not because Jesus is hiding his identity. But rather our limited minds, our human experience, our own hard hearts combine to shroud this reality. And so that emotion moves Luke, the writer, to say you must know who Jesus is. You must discern this. He insists that this is the singular path to joy and to eternal life. So as Luke recounts the history of Christ's ministry, we come to chapter 9 at a very pivotal moment in his, in, the, in his account. Jesus has ministered for some time in the northern district of Galilee, far away from Jerusalem to the south, where he finds many, many enemies. But his teaching in this northern portion of Israel has made him wildly popular, as has the miracles that he has worked. And in the working of those miracles, everybody is asking, who is Jesus? 
But he knows that even his disciples do not yet really have a clear picture on who he really is. And he comes to this point, so on the, on the cusp of this great popularity, he comes now to a pivotal point where he needs to explain to the disciples that there's more here than meets the eye. So he leads them for, further north, 25 miles or so north of the Sea of Galilee, where he's in a different district, where he is safe from his enemies, and he's also out of reach by, of the adoring crowds. And we find then in this passage, this question asked, who is Jesus? We pick up there at chapter 9 of Luke, verse 18. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. That is, he's praying alone, personally, the disciples though in the area. He's praying alone, away from the crowds. But as his disciples are there with him, we know that something big is coming. Jesus was a man of prayer, But when the gospel writers note this and picture him in prayer, it is usually a tip-off that something very important is about to take place. And that is certainly the case here. He knows what he must do to teach his disciples about who he truly is and what is coming up in the days ahead. And so he seeks the Father's strength as he prays. Continuing there in verse 18, he asks them then, as he assembles the twelve, who do the crowd say that I am? And they answer John the Baptist, others say Elijah, others that one of the prophets of old has risen. Probably a mixture there of excitement in some sense that people see that he's really an important individual and yet some great disappointment on the other because he's not John the Baptist and he's not Elijah. Now, whether they were thinking this specifically as these individuals risen from the dead or something like that, maybe more the ideas. Remember Elijah running ahead of Ahab's chariot as he announces what God has done as they come into the city of Jezreel? And then in fulfillment of that image, John the Baptist running before Messiah, that he would come and deliver Israel. And other people thinking that Jesus was one of the prophets, so maybe the one who is preparing the way for Messiah, or in some sense a prophet who is speaking for who Christ is, who Messiah is. But Jesus asked his disciples that question, who are the people saying that I am, to get really to this question. Verse 20, then he said to them, but who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? In the original text that you is, they didn't have this, but it would be italicized. It is emphasized. This is what the people are saying, but what do you say? To our own day, is it not true that there's all types of answers to this question? Some would claim today that Jesus never lived. He's just an imaginary figure. He's a Santa Claus type. That's all that there is. I just assure you of the fact that there is no legitimate historian alive that says that today. There are some that can make such a claim and seek to support it, but no historian would say that. It is very clear that Jesus lived. But perhaps most people worldwide believe that Jesus was a capable religious teacher who performed many good works. Someone that we should look to and revere, but that's it. Just a good religious moral teacher. 
As C.S. Lewis famously answered that question, he's only a lunatic or a deceiver or he is who he said he is. There's no possible middle ground here that he was just a good guy. Look at what he taught. He's either crazy or he's deceiving or he is something very other. Kind of tracking in that same way, there's a large swath of those who would claim to be Christians today who believe that Jesus was a teacher who taught whatever they want to hear. They're very happy for the Jesus that teaches the things that they hold to and believe. But everything that the Bible attributes to Jesus that they don't like, they just blame that on his disciples. They added that later. He could not have possibly said that. You can call it the Jesus of the mirror. The Jesus that you see in the mirror every day, that's the Jesus many like, taking bits and pieces of what they accept. Others in our secular world would just write Jesus off as irrelevant. Many of them would be, if honest, you'd say, who is Jesus? And they'd say, what does it matter? Who cares? I don't know, he lived some time ago. It's utterly irrelevant to me. What's really ironic about that response these days is that so often the people who say that Jesus is utterly irrelevant promote many values that find their inspiration in the historical roots of the teachings of Jesus Christ. Look at it historically. Compassion for the poor and weak, love for outsiders, service to the sick, And on it goes. So they very interested in what Jesus laid out and how he transformed societies by his teaching, but he's utterly irrelevant to us. Well, Peter speaks for the disciples who know better than all of this. And he says there in verse 20, said to them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Christ of God. The Christ is a Greek translation of the Hebrew Messiah. To say, or in that word means anointed one, that is one with kingly authority, the one that God would send to rescue his people. To say that Jesus is the Christ, then, is to say that he is the long prophesied Savior sent by God to rescue his people from the curse of sin. The prophecies of the Old Testament allow no place for multiple messiahs. There is one. There is one who will come to crush Satan's head. There is one. He would be the son of David, yet called everlasting father and mighty God. He would be born in a village of Bethlehem of Judea to a virgin. He would heal the sick, raise the lame, restore sight to the blind, and raise the dead. He would crush Satan's head in a mutual death blow. He would rule from Jerusalem over a kingdom that would extend to the ends of the earth. This, and nothing less, is who Jesus is. Yet we must not conclude Peter figured this out on his own. In the parallel account in Matthew, Matthew says, it pictures Jesus answering him here, quotes him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So there is a work of God that is necessary, and that is brought out here very clearly. So let's think of it by way of application. If you insist that Jesus drop to his knees and pass your test 
of what you deem logical, rational, and acceptable, you will never see Jesus for who he is. If you stand as the judge and jury, insisting that he prove himself to be logical on your terms, you won't see him. God must open our blind eyes to this reality. That means that what you must do is want him to show you this. To ask God to help you see what you cannot see on your own. Many non-Christians decide that the notion of Jesus as the God-man, as both eternal and one born of flesh and time, is, is simply illogical. So they go to the Bible with then the agenda of proving it inconsistent. Since that concept of who Jesus is is illogical to my mind, then I will go to the Bible to prove that it is illogical. It makes a mistake here. It doesn't speak of this properly here. What they do not realize is that no one enters relationship with Christ by reason alone. No one. You cannot reason your way to God any more than a blind person can learn to appreciate fine art. Knowing Christ is more than intellectual endeavor. It is more than reciting a creed. It is, at the end of the day, a relationship. And this relationship is one into which we are born anew. Peter rightly knows Jesus to be exactly this, God's chosen deliverer. And as Jesus makes it clear here in Matthew chapter 16, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you. This is not a matter of man's rational conclusion on its own. As rational as it is, as logical as it is, there must be a work of God in your heart. And so Peter lays this out, identifying Jesus as the Christ of God. So this is indeed his true identity. And Jesus, in the parallel accounts of the Gospels, commends this statement by Peter. But we look then secondly at his true identity and then at his earthly mission, beginning at verse 21. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. That's a strange statement, isn't it? I mean, they've been traveling around Galilee announcing Christ as Messiah, essentially. Proclaiming the good news about Christ as the Savior that has come to rescue his people. And now Jesus is saying, don't talk about it. Why? Well, as verse 22 says, he is the son of man, and this is what people are not going to receive about him, that he must suffer many things. He is the son of man. It's a title that connects Jesus to the vision of Daniel chapter 7, where one like unto a son of man stands before God, the ancient of days, and takes on the prerogatives of God in his presence in eternity over all the earth. Who is this son of man? Jesus uses this phrase in part to identify with Daniel 7, 
somewhat subtly. For the Son of Man typically is used in reference to Jesus in his suffering. And that is what he brings up here now. When we think of this, though, there's a context. There's people out there. And so as Jesus says this, I, the Son of Man, must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and chief priests, the scribes, and be killed. And on the third day, raised again. There's only half of that that works for the Jewish crowds. They want half a Messiah. They wanted a Messiah who would drive Rome out of the land. This expectation did not arise out of nowhere. Isaiah chapter 62 reads, For Zion's sake I will not keep silent, and for Jerusalem's sake I will not be quiet, until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nations shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory. This was Israel's hope. She longed for Messiah to defeat Israel's enemies, to restore her scattered people to the land, to set up Messiah's rule over the earth from Jerusalem, bringing in an era of prosperity and the awe of the nations and the kings that lead them. Some would take this concept as wrong on the part of the disciples. I would side with those who say they're simply premature. But the crowds, back to the point, would have very happily forced Jesus to take on the crown and to rule as Messiah. They didn't care what happened to the guy, but the next Messiah would step forward if this one went down. But they're hoping for this one who would come in and conquer against all appearances. But what does Jesus say? You don't know me. The crowds don't know me, so do not spread this message because they won't do the right thing with it. But here's what you need to know. I will be rejected. I am God's Messiah. I am the Christ. I am the one who has been sent to save and rescue his people. But I need to break this to you. It's there in Scripture. But you need to understand, I will be rejected. That word that is used here of rejected, verse 22, is, is a word that was used in technical settings after a cautious, careful analysis. They will look at me. They will see me. They will see what I do. They will see who I am in the demonstration of the miracles and the teaching that I do. And they will say, no thanks. We do not want him. Secondly, he will die. Jesus would, as we know from Scripture, then substitute his life in the place of sinners as a sacrificial lamb. That he would pay the penalty of breaking God's law and incurring his just wrath against sin. He would step in the sinner's place to die as that lamb of God. God's law condemns, for instance, gossip and lying and lust and greed and selfishness and pride and envy and turning to pleasures and powers that replace God in our heart. And God is a God of absolute, ultimate holiness and justice, cannot stand by and do nothing. He's not a pushover. Never says in his word that he's a pushover. He says that he's God of absolute justice and holiness, and therefore sin 
must be addressed. But this is where Christ's death comes in to pay the cost of our sin. We see that there in the prophecy that has come way before these followers and those who heard Jesus teach. We read it here this morning, Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. We esteemed him stricken. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the judgment that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. It's all there. Israel wanted half a Messiah. They didn't understand how this Savior would come and save. But this is it. He would die. And, verse 22, on the third day be raised. I mean, they're sticking your neck out, huh? Count it. I will rise from the dead. Jesus' death for our sins would have no effect if he did not give us eternal life in place of death. We have here a direct prophecy that he would defeat death. And on the day Jesus left the grave... He proved that all he claimed to be was true and that all that he intended to accomplish was indeed accomplished. I will rise again. That to which this passage points, the rest of the New Testament supports and develops. Jesus Christ is then who? And who is he to you? He is the eternal Son of God, God, very God, But taking on flesh as God, he lived without sin, died to bear the penalty of our sin, rose from the dead to purchase for his people eternal forgiveness and life in his presence. Forgiven. This is who Jesus is. This is what his ministry revealed, his claims revealed, his followers supported, and what Revelation gives us about his identity. He came to die. He is the Savior. Who is Jesus? The next question that is addressed in this text is what does following Jesus then involve? If this is the case, what does it mean? First of all, we see by way of answer a radical reversal of one's life orientation. This is what it means. If this is who indeed he is, then it involves a radical reversal of our life orientation. Verse 23. We'll narrow in here to this verse and sit in it for a while. Let's pick it apart and see what he says. Jesus said to all, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. If anyone would come after me, that is choosing to follow Jesus, is choosing to set out on a journey elsewhere. But for this journey, you do not pack your bags, you carry a cross. Thus Jesus says, let him deny himself. So if you will come after me, if you are to follow me, you're going to go on a journey and that will involve denying yourself. This does not mean, of course, that you deny your existence. It doesn't mean that you deny yourself certain pleasures or conveniences. It's far more than a string of sacrificial choices that's in view here. 
To deny yourself is to unseat me from the throne of my heart and to enthrone Christ there. I deny self as the controlling center of my soul. I deny myself as that controlling center and I see Christ as there. To deny myself is to subordinate then and to align all my heart desires and goals to those of Christ. Are you hearing? The natural way of filtering that is to minimize it. To just say, my, my mind doesn't really grasp that. And to set it aside. But to deny ourselves is to say ultimately that my identity is in union with Jesus crucified and risen such that self-promotion, self-preservation, self-pleasure are subjected to his will and to his counsel. He is the Lord, not me. I will come after him. I'm going to go on a journey. It will mean that he is seated on the throne of my heart and I deny myself. Thirdly then, to take up your cross daily. The cross is figurative, of course, but the image is very real and meant to gain attention. Roman soldiers customarily force criminals to take the crossbeam of their cross and to carry it, usually on a back that was bleeding by whipping, from whipping. And they would carry that cross to the place of execution and then, of course, be staked to it and lifted up. It's interesting that when Jesus was somewhere in the range of 11 years of age, there was a a revolution that took place at a town just four miles from Nazareth where he grew up. Roman soldiers burned Sepphoris after that. that some, there was an attack on the armory there. They, Rome said, we're going to make sure this doesn't happen again, so send the message. This is what we'll do. We'll burn down the town. We'll enslave all of the people, and the people directly involved, 2,000 men, will all be crucified. If you can imagine the picture of along the side of one road, on a massive stretch of crosses, 2,000 of them lining the road. Jesus knew what crucifixion was. Can you imagine how that affected a boy just four miles away? They communicated better than we do with social media. They just talked to people. And the talk spread in a rapid way. The message was sent. I don't know if he saw those individuals dying on crosses or not, but he certainly heard about them as a boy. He knew the pain. He knew what it meant. He knew what a literal cross was. But the figurative sense, we have to get this right. In the figurative sense, he's not saying, he's not referring to bearing physical pain or facing disease or enduring a difficult relationship or facing poverty. People might say of those types of things, I have to bear my crosses. He's talking about one cross. Not any suffering that you may be going through, but one cross. He's talking not about battling addiction or suffering a setback or disappointment, but of identification with Christ crucified. And then follow me. That is, the cross-bearing journey is one in which we, so to speak, put our steps in the footprints of Christ. If we could picture him with the crowds jeering and yelling 
and belittling on the sides of the road as Jesus tries to lug his cross to the place of execution. We see ourselves walking behind with our own crossbeam. We accept then the ridicule, the rejection of the world that rejects Christ. This orientation is to be, as he says here, a daily focus. That is, you choose it when you get out of bed and you carry on from there day by day. For this church, for believers genuinely following Christ, Jesus isn't a Sunday morning thing. He is a daily focus. From the moment that we get up to the moment that we fall asleep, we are in Christ. Now, you might read this, and in fact, I, th- I think for some, just being awake, you would see it this way, and just say, what is wrong with you people? This is, this is crazy. This is, this is like way over top. Unseat myself? Put Christ at the center of everything? Thinking of him and my identification with him daily? This is nuts. Have fun, but leave me out of this. Well, Jesus, I would say, very much understands. I mean, there's no false advertising here. He's saying what he's saying very purposefully. But he reasons now and gives gives three reasons why we should consider this not insane, but in fact what makes absolute sense. You notice there in verse 24, 25, and 26 all begin with the word for. He's laying out a defense now as to why this is rational. This is what is right. This is indeed an essential decision as Christ has come to rescue us from our sin. And so come after him, follow him, take, deny yourself, take up your cross daily and follow him. For, verse 24, whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Our maker counsels us to understand that this principle, if you cling to life, if you insist on keeping self on the throne, you will lose your soul. You were not created to run your own life. So cling to it. It's a gift from God, but you cling to it as yours and you will lose it. You must know that a world obsessed with self-focus and self-protection and self-promotion and self-expression is calibrated to self-destruction. You can blow his counsel off or you can say, this is right. Cling to life at all costs and you'll suffocate it, but lose your life. That doesn't mean die necessarily, but lose your life is a sense of letting it go taking hands off, turning your soul over to God, laying it on the altar of sacrifice for His glory. You do that, verse 24, and you will save it. It's so counterintuitive. It's like we're hanging off a rope 20 feet from the ground and everything in our soul says cling harder, get more, grasp more. Control your life. And Jesus says, let go. And I'll catch you. 
In fact, you must, or you'll die. Second reason for this life orientation follows in verse 25. For what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses or forfeits himself? So cling to life and you'll lose it. So what is the point then if you're just clinging to the rope all of your life and you end up dying, losing your soul, separated from God? Jesus knows our natural bent to go after what is profitable in this world, but he reminds us that when we pass this life, we enter eternity and leave behind absolutely everything that we held on to here. No one hitches a U-Haul behind a hearse. You're going in naked. We leave it all here. So how foolish to live your life for the things that you can consume, the things that you can hold on to here that are going to be left when you leave anyway. Third reason for this radical call of faith in Christ. Verse 26, For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. This is the future that we face. Jesus knows this future. And we will stand before Christ then as our final judge. As the Son of Man, He will return to earth in His glorified state as sovereign Lord. And when He comes in glory, when He comes engulfed in the splendor of the Father and of the angels of light, the last thing we will want on that day is to have lived on the right side of history in man's kingdom and find that we are now on the wrong side of history eternally. You're ashamed of me in the midst of the ridicule and the opposition and the suffering of my people. Remember this day that's coming. There will be no one ashamed of Christ in that moment. So live as if this day is indeed coming, for it is. You cannot be popular in two worlds. you got to pick which one's your home. This isn't it for Jesus' followers. Well, in the tale of the Scarlet Pimpernel, Marguerite does in fact learn who Percy really is. You breathe a sigh of relief. The story worked. And that knowledge leads to great joy as a happy couple sails off to their new life together. But stories like that, that pull at us to understand who someone really is, I think they are in part a faint reflection of the resolution that every soul longs to experience. We were made to find our soul's ultimate joy in God, and we will never be at rest until we do so. And the unrest that may, in fact, be possessing your soul today finds its solution in coming to know who Jesus truly is. By coming to know who he truly is, and then by aligning our lives to that reality, we are reconciled to God, we become heirs of eternal joy in his presence as forgiven sinners, and we begin to live in this life in a radically different way. Self is off the throne. Christ is on the throne. And all begins to align. So who then is Jesus to you? 
Do you know him? Is your life aligned to the one who is life itself? You can see again that there's no false advertising with Jesus. He bids us come and die to self, to sin. But thus, to die to the emptiness of life that self naturally fuels. So if you cannot say today that I know Jesus Christ as my personal Lord and Savior, I've come to new birth in Him. If you cannot say that, pray that He would open your eyes to what you haven't seen. Who is Jesus to you? He is your soul, soul's joy and strength, and your eternal soul hinges on the answer. So we plead with you, don't labor to gain this world and in the process lose your soul. Talk with someone after the service. Talk with someone at the picnic. Seek more of what God has revealed. This is just a snippet, just a picture. There is so much more. This is central. It's set right in that beautiful scene and picture. But there's so much more to it. We have nothing to sell. We have nothing to force upon you. We cannot make you see fine art if you're blind. But we can talk you through the words of Christ that we have heard that's opened our blind eyes and continues to open eyes today. May the Lord enable you then to experience forgiveness of sin as you discover who Jesus truly is. And may those of us who have remember to continually recalibrate life to Christ at center. Let's pray. We're thankful, Father, for the revelation that we have considered here today for who Jesus is and the implications of that reality. I pray that everyone who leaves this place would come to terms with this question and would consider their own walk with you. Lord, for those who are separated from Christ and have not yet seen his glory and have no hope in his return, I pray that you would put the seed of that idea in their soul and allow it to bear fruit. I pray that you'd bring new birth even this day, and perhaps you have. Lord, we pray that you will hear the cry of our heart to faithfulness to you, that we would take up our cross daily and follow you. May we live a cruciform life, one that does not cling to this world as our ultimate satisfaction, but clings to Christ alone. Aid us to that end, we pray. We plead for your help, your strength, and your sanctifying grace in our lives. Through Christ we pray. Amen.